0: Thanks. Did everybody get this handout? No. Oh. Um,
1: I didn't notice the other didn't
0: use power. Do you care? No, I don't. It's fine. Anybody get this handout? No, are you? Oh, it's coming around. Okay. Bob well, Doc's passing this out, just a quick um, business thing. Um. I think I told you, I talked with Marcy about the books. She said they were supposed to be in on Monday or Tuesday, and as far as I can tell, they're not in, so I don't know what's going on. But we still have a couple more weeks um, with Faulkner, so we should be okay. Um, Hopefully, they'll be in soon, and, just, just to let you know, too, I think I, Suzanne and I will try to finish the study guide next week, but um, yeah, I hope I can get it to you, we can get it to you by before the last week, get it to you next week so you have it for the final book, but I've already been looking over the study guide and I've, I I think it's actually pretty good, but there are mistakes in it. I've got I've to make some changes in it, but um, it should help you. It's. I don't think you'll. I don't even think you'll catch the mistakes that I've got on my mind. There may be some typos, but what I'd like to do is print off the whole thing, the whole thing, the last week. So you have you have a study guide, even though it will be late for you. Um, I hope some of you will plan to go back and reread these books because I think you know by now that first time you read a book, you there's no way. No way to fully appreciate it you have to you have to see the whole thing and go back and read it to see the way the whole is present in parts all along you can't do that when you've not read it so um, anyway so um, we'll let you know when the books come in and uh, I think we have two more weeks left so any any prayer requests this morning
1: friend of friends who, who are married since you have been talking about marriage some of its challenges. Their 50th anniversary is tomorrow, or they're celebrating it tomorrow. I don't know if that's on mm-hmm. day. And he has had a massive heart attack. He is now out of the hospital. He survived although he died a couple of times. Heart stop. Um, but he has some really serious memory loss. And so they're they're struggling at the moment because everything changed. Yeah. You know and yeah. Not. I don't mean. Yeah, they're just struggling. I mean, it's it's difficult. Um, so just John and Connie.
0: Say the first one. John
1: thing. and Connie. Sean. John. John. Okay. On, For one thing, he did most of the cooking. And now he questions why are we having oatmeal? <laughs> he made it every morning. <laughs> but, can
0: you imagine?
1: It's
0: yeah, or it's somebody the the spouse of somebody who's got up Alzheimer. I mean, the, yeah. you
1: know, I, I'm not polluting that at all. But at least that comes out a little bit gradually. So you, you nobody ever gets used to it. You have time to
0: prepare for it in some get, way.
1: Well, you have time to change on a more gradual basis. I guess I would say because I've had friends. Who've gone it's
0: not like it. we have any choice in any of these things. No, anymore. it no. isn't. No. Any anybody else?
1: Just for all those battling the flu. Oh. Yeah. The, flu? Yeah, the flu.
0: Glad to do that because I'm one of them. <laughs> oh,
1: good. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> no, he's you. Not. No, he's not.
0: Do you all want to leave? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and maybe for the families of all the children. What you? Involved. Oh God.
1: Uh, my daughter's father-in-law died. They were on. He was on vacation in Alabama, so. one of those
0: problems of getting body back What's
1: his
0: name? Dan In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit Thank you again Lord for the gift of our life from you and um, for our life with each other for your presence always the gift of yourself to us in the Mass for all the ways you offer yourself that we don't see um, something's coming up in this poem today, like the whole work I hope that we're doing, this Faulkner work, that will help us become aware that there's so much more going on. Uh, we catch glimpses of it often, and even if it's glimpses, they should remind us that how much you're involved with every single thing going on in our life. Uh, never to forget that. I ask for a special blessing for all of us um, here at the outset of Lent. Strengthen us in our efforts. You were really clear this morning. Somebody, go ahead and bang it, Tom. Yeah. Um, You reminded us this morning that you don't want. Um, burnt sacrifices or holocausts. you ask that um, really that we bring you to get past those boundaries that that, um, we make around ourselves in order to have life the way we want them, to be comfortable and and not um, be discomforted by what goes on around us. You ask (coughs) us to free the prisoners, to feed the poor, to clothe um, those who are clothless, you ask us to open our hearts, um, to tear them, and to let you out. Um, Help all of us to take this discipline seriously. You call us to the world to bring you. I ask for a special grace, a great courage, a greater love for all of us um, who are struggling with um, burdens in our own families, uh, particularly now. Um, that we trust in you, have courage to risk ourselves, um, to know that you, even if we make mistakes, um, you always bring good out of them. It should make us more willing to try. So, in this Latin period, let it be a time of growing closer to you and everything we do, particularly with our loved ones, with each other, those that we love. Ask for a. Um, <coughs> Special grace for John and Connie. Um, Things happen that entail suffering. It's not like we can control them. um, It's part of our lives. Um, Help both of them, most particularly Connie, um, to make a place for her husband and whatever his condition will ask of her. Watch over him if it can be um, let light return to his memory and help him to know again through it. And ask a special blessing on Dan. It's Dan, yes? Receive him into your kingdom. Um, wash away his sins. If he's to do time in purgatory, let our prayers move him along. Clear his eyes, open his heart <coughs> to see and feel those things he didn't here, um, so that he will be able to come into your presence and know the joy of being with you. Um, let that be so for all of us. Um, he gathers together, and draws to you, um, that one day um, we can know each other in a joy um, of being with you. We offer these prayers um, in you, Christ our Lord, amen. <clears throat> I think you're going to like what we do at this poem this morning I'm really looking forward to it um, where's it going I'd like to we're not going to come to this for a minute but my, my mind is going so much I can't trust that I'll remember so I, I want I to speak I want to take a moment to speak to what we've been talking about A couple of weeks ago I asked this question um, which to me was a serious one and it's the same question I asked at the end of Sound of the Fury. Um, could anything have been done differently in the Jefferson town with that predicament? And, um, and the other question was if there had been a Catholic community, would Catholics have done anything differently? Just those are catechetical questions. I didn't want to skirt them. So I'm, we'll come back to them in a minute. But in light of that, I've been thinking about this, be, particularly because of the struggles that we have in our own families, in our marriages, with our children. Um,
2: Do you want to speak to that now or later?
0: What? About the thing that been done. We're going to come it? back to it. Okay. I, but I want to just, I want you back. Wilka, how are you? I'm good. You, everything went all right? I'm uh,
1: here. No, <laughs> that's another story.
0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Um, we're going to come back to it because I want to, but I to I I just want to preface this because I'm gonna, I may forget it because I'm forgetting a lot these days. Um, I've been thinking a lot about marriages and families and burdens and. I remembered once when I was reading Shakespeare's, um, it's, it's, it's the play that's set in France, um, All's Well That Ends Well, All's Well That Ends Well. It has one of the most extraordinary women in all of Shakespeare's, Helena, Helena. She's the daughter of a court physician um, who heals the king, or no, she heals the king because of the knowledge and she's described as having that third eye which is a mystic symbol of a special kind of wisdom that's, that's greater than just mere intellectual or conceptual wisdom. She's an amazing woman, and there's this one passage where she declares her love for the son of the king, who's beyond her because of his class. So we're in a class division with all the problems that, that makes for marriages. And, and the, after she heals the king, the king gives her a choice, and she says she wants to marry the son, I think his name is Bertrand, and he's, a, he's partly a scoundrel, he's, he's a noble, so like most nobles, he's got a scoundrel in him. He refuses because he wants to have his own will. He wants to do whatever he wants, to, so to marry, to marry this woman who is of a lower class is embarrassing to him. I don't want to go on, but it, it's an extraordinary story. There's this one passage where she declares her love for him or speaks it to herself and she says, I, will, I think she must say it to herself, I haven't read this in a long time, but she says, I will be um, your wife, your lover, um, your saint, your whore, your... There's just nothing she will not be. So it's really clear that sexually (coughs) and psychologically, everything that can happen in a marriage is something she's ready to offer. I mean, she just loves the man. He goes off to war to avoid her. I I don't want to... Let's see, how can I tease to get you to read this? He goes off to the war to fight, and she follows him, and then something happens. How about that, if I just read it there? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? It's a good <laughs> <He's> like, oh. <laughs> Bev is laughing. <laughs> I think you pretty well gave it
2: away.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, one of, one of the things you come away from that play with is this sense of the awful things that children do to their parents. You know, the awful things that we that we suffer. And that's a constant in all of Shakespeare's plays because they're intergenerational. So all, Lear, I mean, if you've read King Lear, you know Goneril and Reagan and um, Ed, Edmund are mean, mean. And in some ways, Lear has brought it on. I mean, he just has not taken the care to... But, anyway, you know, I want to just offer this thought on the burdens that we carry in families. I have not articulated this. It's like a light that, um, as you could imagine, I'm pretty conscientious when it comes to being a father. I mean, I if I see something going on with the kids, I will go and talk with them. And sometimes it makes for struggles, and generally the kids are pretty good. But sometimes it gets really sticky. It, it is it is right now with one of my one of, one of our sons, but. When I look back at my life, when I was their age, I'm I'm embarrassed. I mean, I'm just so embarrassed to think about the things that I did. I'm still embarrassed about the things that I do. This, I mean, I go to confession regularly. Um, I I take it. I mean, I'm very serious about this, but um, but I'm so embarrassed. And our kids struggle to be true to their faith, pretty strongly. Amy is serious, Thomas is serious, Christopher is serious, Ian and Kayla are struggling, Jonathan and Ems are, they're absolutely serious. We came into the church, it was a conversion story for Suzanne and me. Our kids are deeply involved, but there are struggles, serious struggles. Um, it, it just occurred to me that um, if we think about the sin of Adam, that there are parents, we've all inherited those sins and if, 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 that, if that sounds too minimal let me, let me enlarge on it the way I've done before <clears throat> I believe the full depth of our sins doesn't come into the light if we don't see that we killed God we put him on a cross and killed him I believe that every other sin is contained in that so if we, if we minimize sins and say I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer I, you know, that, so I don't have to I mean, that's not the way I look at myself or the way I look at all of us. We're all implicated in God's death. We put him there, so it seems to me the full depth of our sin only emerges if we confront that fact. The original sin was turning against him. All sins come from that fact. We made ourselves, I've said this in our talks before, we've made ourselves more important than him. When, before the fall, our love was complete. God made us with an infinite desire, to love Him. That desire could only be fulfilled by an infinite object, Him. When we turn from Him, that love gets directed towards ourselves and all the things that we want. Will it ever be answered, if it's infinite? I hope everybody's clear. Absolutely not. There's no way. Get a new car and say, as soon as I get this new car this new home or this new job, I'll be happy. No. It's not going to happen. Because as soon as we get that car and somebody scratches it, we're, we're going to have to suffer payments for the next 10 years and then want another one. I mean, what, you know, whatever. Um, we carry that disorder with us. The whole struggle of our life should be get back to God. We will not get things right with each other if we don't get right with Him. So um, we've inherited that sin from our parents. And we carry it in ourselves, no matter how much we struggle to be good, um, and we, and we, and at some point in our lives we become parents, our kids are going to be facing the same problems. They're going to have to learn to deal with evil, no matter how well we've helped them, they're going to be tempted, they're going to fall. God knows that. Yeah? I mean, th- it may be a sign of a greater faith in those kids that they fall so hard in our world, because the temptation was great, it may be even more severe. It is that because their faith was so great? When they fall, it's going to be more traumatic or more violent. Shakespeare's line was, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. If you got a real gift and you fall, the effects of it would be far greater than if your gifts were smaller. So the fact that you raise a child in your faith (laughs) is almost a condition for a greater fall when it comes. Now, not everybody does, but I'm just saying this because I, I in some ways I've, I've said, Suzanne, I feel a little bit blessed that when we started this, I didn't have any idea where the prayers would take us, but everybody sort of opened their, you know, your lives and um, we're all aware of the struggles that we carry. So anyway, I, just, I hope that can console in some way, that that part of our struggle isn't just with our kids and the burdens they leave us with; it's learning to trust in God. I, and I'm not saying that to do what the Protestant says, which he says, "Leave it to God." I, I don't think we're supposed to do that. I think I think we're supposed to carry Christ everywhere. To be Christ to our children, to friends. When there's an adultery, when there's whatever that whatever alcoholism, drugs, it doesn't matter. Addictions doesn't matter. We're to take Christ there, and risk trusting that, he, knowing he will bring some good out of it, even if we, remember, remember Hamlet's line? Um, there's, a, there's providence in the fall of the spirit. We rough hew them how we do, will. We make all these plots, rough hew them how we will, but there's an ordinance, there's a providence that will bring a good out of it. I've messed the line up, but that's one of Hamlet's insights that he comes to understand that rough few these plans, no matter how we plot things out, um, there will be failings. We're not God, but we, we, we have courage to risk ourselves, particularly when it's hard when we have to say no to somebody we love and still love them. trusting God will be there. that's our faith so anyway I didn't I just i would had that thought. When I I read Shakespeare, you can't read Shakespeare without seeing the awful things that kids do to their parents. And um, it, it seems to me one of the gifts for us as parents, and I'm saying this truly, are those hardships they put on us. If we didn't carry Christ earlier the way we should, there's no way to avoid it as we move towards our death because we're going to be far more serious about anything we do loving God. So it's interesting to me that at a time when we're, I think, when we're struggling to you know, to approach God, we're far more sensitive to the wrongs of our kids, the struggles in the world, the disorders around us. But there's a gift to us in that, that, that we bear that with Christ. That's a gift. I'm not trying to whitewash this. I hope because you, you know that for me that means a cross but I believe there's a gift there for us so anyway I just wanted to pass that on because it's so much a part of the literature that we've been reading Shakespeare and Dante and all of it. Okay, to the, to the poem. We'll come back, we'll come back to this. I think you're gonna like this poem. It's actually related to what I'm saying, and what we're going to go on to look at here. Yeah. Is anybody talking about dry salvage for you? They're doing Elliott's dry salvages. I have to keep thanking you guys because I'm going back to these things after having not read them for ages and I'm just amazed at what I'm seeing again even though my mind is going on <coughs> I'm amazed at what's here remember that Eliot takes as a, a a governing motif for each of the quartets, one of the four basic elements, fire, air, earth, and water. Any of you heard of the, the children's animated cartoon series called Avatar? Yes. Our kids watch it, our grandkids. I, I love it. It it's opens with this Eastern looking warrior figure going, um, water, and then water dashes out, earth, and then earth dashes out of his hands, fire and flame and then, I mean, he, it's called an airbender, he masters nature. And the story involves these three kids who have to learn to work together. It's one of the reasons I love it, because they have to. Our kids love it, I'm in and out of it, but there's an interesting thought for you while we're reading Elliot.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: oh, okay. oh God, it's getting worse and worse. Yeah.
3: Yes. Controlling nature
2: we always got
3: ourselves in trouble. I guess. <laughs>
0: It's so one of the questions that I have about this avatar, but I mean we're called to self-mastery in our struggles with it, how about that? Remember that he's got one of the elements and we've been aware that in each one of the quartets the, the, the unifying motif for all the quartets is the still point. There is this point at the center of motion that in a sense defines everything. It's always there and the question is whether we see it. You know, Burt Norton, I thought, was amazing in, in the way he looked. He it reminds me of a scientist. He showed its presence in a number of different things. If it's present in all those things, how can it not be present everywhere? I mean, it's like a scientific demonstration. It's here. And in, um, in East Coker, we saw the land and the cyclical nature of everything. Remember all things returning to dust. In Dry Salvages, he takes um, water, the sea, as the central image. And remember, the interesting thing about water is that it's in flux. So it's always changing. It's an image of the mutability of the world. Everything's changing. If everything's changing, there's no principle, right? There's just all things are in flux. It's what the water world says is chaos, OK? The sea is an image of chaos. It's always in flux. Yeah. Here's the irony, but the sea is always the sea, so I love that. I mean, I I think about that when we do the Odyssey, because the sea has that kind of significance in Homer's world when Odysseus has to confront the sea. He takes the sea as the governing image, and we get some of these lines. We're going to do section two. He says, I do not know much about God's but think that the river is a strong brown god. And he describes people modern <coughs> commercial interests who try to control the sea. It goes to Fred's point. We can't read it again because we've already read it, but remember, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy, as a conveyor of commerce, then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten. Then we can then we can take gods for granted, once we master them with our technology. Yeah? So his rhythm is present in the nursery bedroom, in the the flowers, the grapes. It's there everywhere, a few lines down. The river is within us, the sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches. The beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. It tosses up our losses. Go down. The sea how and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard. The whine and the rigging, the menace. So he's teaching us to see that the sea is everywhere. It even speaks, it has voices. Okay? Remember, we got this first from Hopkins in uh, Kingfisher's Catch Fire? Each thing speaks its own name. Each it for that I came. That's the reason each thing comes into being to express its self and he said Christ dwells in 10,000 places happy joyful Christ is present everywhere even if we don't see him <coughs> should do this course all over again no really just a because it, I mean the whole stress of it he's here everywhere do we see him thank God for poets <coughs> Not truly um. Go down a little bit. And under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time. Because remember, it's rung by the by the lappings of the sea, this bell that tolls. Measures not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women. So he's talking once again about something like the still point. The, t- the time he's talking about has always been there. It's present in the shifting of the tide. You can hear it in the the knolling of the bell. Trying to unweave, unwind, unravel and piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception, the future futureless before the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. And that's where we left off. Now let me just,
3: <clears throat>
0: I want to give something away, I don't like doing this, but... The next, the next section, section two is divided into two halves. The first section consists of six sestets. How many lines in the sestet? Six. Alright, six lines, six sestets. I believe if I had read them, you would not have picked up the rhyme scheme. Now, let me have your attention on this one. Hold on just for because this is really important. Ordinarily, a, um, a stanza will go like a sestet: A A B B C C A B A B C C. It could could be any number of or any very. You've got A B C A B C. I mean, you can do it a number of ways. Poets do different things.
1: Robert, it's the rhyme scheme you're
0: talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. You
1: um, see this? The rhyme scheme. <laughs> <laughs> the rhyme scheme. A, B. So right.
2: a, a rhymes with B? No, okay. A rhymes with
1: so A, so a, a, B, and then you have A, B repeated, and then you have A,
0: B repeated. So okay. the the word ending the line will rhyme with another word or another line, and the rhyme scheme could be A, A, that is, it could be a couplet. First two lines rhyme, the next two lines, or or it could be A, A, B, B, C, C, C. Is everybody following? Yes. yes. Okay, so you could do it any number of ways. I'm, I'm convinced that if I read this, you probably would not... Have heard the rhyme? I don't think I did the first time. Let me have your attention. I, I I don't think I did the first time I read it. Now here's my question: If you if you look at this, you'll see that every every line in a stanza has a corresponding rhyme in that same line in the next stanza. So the first line of the first stanza will rhyme with the first line of the second, the second line of the first stanza, with, and so on through six. Okay? You could hear you could hear the poem read, and probably not even hear it, but maybe faintly, you know, because it's distant. If you heard an AA, um, where's an end to it, the soundless wailing, here's an end to it, um, with all the flailing, you know, if if I had a line like that, you wouldn't miss it. But when you separate the lines over time, there's a chance that you might not pick it up. Now here's my question, and this is crucial for what we're doing. Why did Eliot do this? Why did Eliot do it the way he did it? Because if he's a good poet, and he's a great poet, in some way that rhyme scheme will imitate what the poem is about. It's not a mechanical rhyming. It's not mechanical. Poor poets have mechanical rhymes. Da 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 bing, da 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 sing, da 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 ring, you know. This is not what Eliot's doing. Second point to remember, <laughs> When I read the lines, you'll see every line has a colloquial rhythm to it. The rhythms approach our spoken language. You know, if you've done, in, we did it earlier, I don't know, if, but in, in an iambic pentameter, it's got pent to five, five feet of ions, da-da, 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 da-da. Now, nobody reads poetry that way because you read it rhetorically. But even in a line of iambic pentameter, there's a measure to music, da-da, da-da. So, Whose woods these are, I think I know. Now, you could go, whose woods these are, I think I know. That's from Frost. We don't read it that way. But Frost is writing according according to an underlying meter. It's got four iambic, four iambic feet. Whose, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though, something like that. But we don't. We, we go. Um, whose woods these are? I think I know. His house is in the village, though. You read it rhetorically, yeah. <laughs> Eliot's not using a iambic pattern. <clears throat> His lines follow our spoken speech, so there's no semblance of poetry. And you could read these sestets and go through it and not hear any rhyme at all because they sound so much like informal speech. Okay. So he's done everything he could to conceal the rhymes. Now, why did he do this? Now, let me now. I'll read the sestets, and then I'll finish, and pay attention to what he says afterwards. Okay, Why does he do this? <laughs> you can't tell I love this section. It's amazing. What he's doing here is as amazing as what he did in Burnt Norton with the still point, you know, all the fixed point, But it's a different form, and you could miss it. But it's analogous, and that's the important point. Dry <sighs> South Second section. Where is there an end of it, the soundless wailing, the silent withering of autumn flowers, dropping their petals and remaining motionless? Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage, the prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer of the calamitous annunciation? There is no end but addition, the trailing consequence of further delays and hours, while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. There is the final addition the failing pride or resentment at failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Where is the end of them? The fishermen sailing into the wind's tail where the fog cowers. We cannot think of a time that is oceanless or of an ocean not littered with wastage or of a future that is not liable like the past to have no destination. We have to think of them as forever bailing, setting and hauling, while the northeast lowers over the shallow banks, unchanging and erosionless, or drawing their money, drawing sails at dockage. Not as making a trip that would be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. There is no end of it, the voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage the bones prayer to death its God, only the hardly, barely prayable prayer of the one Annunciation. It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern, and ceases to be mere sequence, or even development, the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, (coughs) which becomes in the popular mind a means of disowning the past. The moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security, or affection, or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination. We had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form, beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said before, that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations, not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable. The backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror. Now, we come to discover that the moments of agony, whether or not, Due to misunderstanding, having hoped for the wrong things or dreaded the wrong things is not in question, are likewise permanent, with such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others nearly experienced involving ourselves than in our own. For our own past is covered by the currents of action. But the torment of others remains an experience unqualified Unworn by subsequent attrition. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, like the river with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows and chicken coops, the bitter apple and the bite in the apple, and the rigged rock in the restless waters, the ragged rock in the restless waters. Waves wash over it, fogs conceal it, in a halcyon day, it is merely a monument. In navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by. But in the somber season, or the sudden fury, it is what it always was. Okay, I don't want to take too much time, because this is not, but there's something special going on here, so I just wanted to take a minute. Why does he do, use that delay rhyme scheme, and what does it have to do with everything that's said afterwards. (coughs) Ember begins, where is there an end of it, the silent silent wailing? Um, And he says, we have to think of them as forever bailing, setting and hauling. There is no end to it, he says at the end, the voiceless wailing. This constant um, flux and the wailing that we associated with it, (coughs) the suffering in our life, is without end. And remember the opening lines of Burton Norton, time present and time future. Time present and time past are are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. There will be no way to escape the suffering that's part of our world. It's not gonna happen. For that, something outside of time has to come. Why does he use this delayed rhyme scheme? Would you have heard it if I would not said it? I don't think so. Because the lines are too colloquial. And he even staggers them in an amazing way to help disguise what he's doing, I think.
1: You have to see it. Yeah, we see it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Why does he do it? Well, he's getting older. <laughs> Tom, I I would ask you to watch her, but I know it's hopeless. He's challenging himself. It's
3: suffering. I mean, he's <laughs> trying something new in his old age.
2: This is a
0: very very conscientious poet. He doesn't do anything without.
2: Look, I'm a I'm a math science guy, so I should be probably the last guy. Question, but it is kind of. Or maybe the most. If you read all the A lines, uh-huh. it actually tells the story. Yes, it
3: does. And
2: so the question is is that. If you, you read, read all the
0: A lines. lines.
2: Oh. Yeah, just, you know, one yeah. A line after yeah. one the other. Yeah. If you read those, I mean, it tells the story in its own self. So, so is that, in essence, what the the, the point in it, or that. Tell that me what
0: is? the story is according to that A line. Well,
2: it's, it's well, for me, I... it, it almost just. Describes infinity in the sense that things. That Who things are my well, <laughs> I mean, you are a mathematician. I said that up front. Right? But, I mean, but it, it is profound in that sense, and that, you know, he, he's basically saying that, you know, does something end? No, it, it, it continues. And, you know, in even in theoretical physics, that still point is, you know, the beginning of all things. And so he almost feel like he's kind of describing that still
0: point if you put all the A-lines together. Or a Or a, for a, math, for a math and science guy. <laughs> <laughs> Here, he says in the, in the lines above that in the end of the first section um, about um, women lying awake you know, with the, and you can, you can picture the wives of sailors who are out at sea wondering if they're going to return and the countless so, and that line of yeah, um, trying to unweave and wind and unravel and piece together, piece together the past and the future between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception, the future futureless. Because remember, the only important moment for us is the present. It's there where we counter God. If we stick ourselves in the past, we're in wounds. If we skip the present because we hope for things to get out of our suffering this is where we meet god in the present moment between midnight and dawn when the past is all deception the future futureless before the morning watch when time stops and time is never ending and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning plan go and piece together the past and the hours and then he says in the second section this is crucial after he after he gives the uh, after he completes the 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 Sestet section? It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence or even development, the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes in the popular mind a means of disowning the past. We had the experience but missed the meaning. There it is, yeah? Isn't it... I mean, I'm I'm assuming I'm not just speaking for myself, don't you all have, haven't you have experiences where something jumps out at you and you connect it with something else and the fact that that happens means whether you hear it that way or not, there's a rhyme. Whether it's put to words, one thing is connected to another. And it makes us aware that there's this pattern, there's something unifying them behind. And the question, so in that sense the poetry is imitating that, you know, he's describing things and we pick up a rhyme and we almost don't hear it. In some ways it's like an imitation of what goes on in life. We'll see something, but we don't see the underlying connection and put them together. And so we don't hear the rhyme, we don't hear the poetry. If we put them together, what we would be hearing is the word. Yeah, I'm trusting everybody knows what I mean, I mean that all words come from the poet, the word. He created everything, all harmonies in him. <clears throat> so in a sense, those opening sestets are, are laying out the theme of this endless wailing, the, the timelessness of the sea, but also showing that there are these, um, there is in our life a pattern um, that the... It, it seems as one becomes older, the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence. We tend to see things one following another. But I'm sure all of us had moments where we look back and say, I know Susanna and I, it just blows us away. There are periods in our life where we look back and say, holy cow, it, it's as if a pattern. <laughs> I mean, I don't get that person here, but there are a number of things that happen around to us around graduate school and of, of uh, dozens of things, we put them together, and there are too many coincidences, too many things. And this is drawing us into the church. Too many things going on that all point towards the same thing. There's no way to look at that and just say there's a sequence. There was a pattern. And if there's a pattern, it's it's poetic. There's a poetry. Do we hear? Remember the music of the spheres image. We have talked about the. Remember the Platonic that each one of the heavens has an angelic order. It's invisible, but all of them together produce this music, a harmony. It's God's harmony, and you can only intellect it. You can't hear it with your senses. It's it's a it's a special kind of wisdom. You have to grasp it with your mind. But if you grasp it, it's the it's it's the experience of the mystic uniting with creation and God. There's no way to hear that except as a harmony. I mean, you call, call it mystical rapture. It's for a moment you come into a music that will give you a joy that has to be overflowing. You following? Is this? So, it's not just a sequence, and ceases to be a mere sequence, or even development, because in, in a scientific world we tend to look at things in terms of development, stages, or something, which becomes, in the popular minds, a means of disowning the past. What he's talking about is we had the experience but missed the meaning. So what the rhyme does is exactly what he's talking about at life. We have these experiences and don't quite see what they mean. And when and when we begin to see that what happened over here and what happened over here are connected, we see this underlying connected, a rhyme take a pattern, a sound takes place. And notice notice that the pattern that he's talking about, and approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. What he's talking about is something like blessedness. Blessedness. Once we see this, it's not the happiness, have a good dinner, a good glass of wine, chocolate bread, <laughs> <laughs> Here's, here's what he says. I have said before that the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. So one of the questions, it seems to me, one of the challenges he's placing before us here is the pattern that I'm talking about that he's asking us to see is, is clearly larger than our own lives. It, ex- it, it existed before we came into the world. It will exist after. Do we begin to see it? Do we have the wisdom to see that? Or the heart to feel its harmonies? Something like that. So here we are back at the still point but in another form. Remember the opening motif, the governing motif, is the sea and the river and the mist and everything's around us. What Eliot's doing, God, it's just it's stunning to me. He's taking every element in so many different aspects of life. He's better than a scientist. No, I'm really saying, I mean he He's going to every aspect of life. He's better than, no, I, don't, I mean, I, he's better than all of us. Let me put it, he, you know, he's better than English teacher. He, he's, a, as a poet, he's taking all these things from a, a great diversity of aspects of life and showing things that we don't see. And they're all pointing towards the same thing. Who can do that in such a varied way? Just stuns me, what he's doing. Anyway, let me, let me stop there. Um, any questions about... Now, now go on and read the rest of it. And Remember, when you read it at home, read it aloud, because you have to hear the poetry. That the past was revived and the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. Those of you who did Dante, remember when Dante gets into the Paradiso, he starts going back to his past. He he meets his great-great-great-grandfather, and and it's... Cacciaguida that assigns Dante makes clear that he has a prophetic calling that he has to go back and tell the truth he goes from Cacciaguida to Adam and from Adam back to God there's no way for Dante to see the fullness of things without seeing the, the pattern enlarged that it covers more than, than ourselves so let me stop there I don't know about you guys, but this amazing isn't that sort of amazing? I love the rhyme scheme. It's like he's saying, "Go back and check your life off. <laughs> See if you can find these, these, these things that are connected. You have these underlying connections, and 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 the rhymes that take place with them. It's a lovely, it's a lovely poem." Questions or, Sue, you're musing.
1: Well, I had a much lower level of thought. Just because the rhyme scheme was, I mean, so I've listened and I agree, but the rhyme scheme was such that it reminded me of waves. Me Yes. You know, with the sea. Yep. Yes. And it, it kind of was like, yes. like this, and that goes on. Yes. And we can't discern differences in them.
0: I, I think you're absolutely right in that, too, by the way. I think that part of his intention. There's nothing lower about that. It's no. true. <laughs> it wasn't
1: quite as deep. No, it's no, because
0: it's, it's there. I, I really believe that it. it's part of it. i knew it. Some of the lines you might even hear a lapping. You know, just the rhythm of it is a it's pretty amazing. So here it is again. Can we? God is all. God is all around us. There is no way He's not going to be concerned in every event that takes place in our lives. How could he? Some amazing way. So, (sighs) I'm worn out. Let's go home. (laughs) (laughs) I need some more bread, (laughs) some chocolate. Okay, let's do. I want to. I want to. I'm going to cut through some stuff here because I'd like to. There's two major questions that I've got. Or. Yeah, two major questions. Very briefly, see if I can. Um, um, let me come back to these two questions, but let me let me begin first by just give you a very very quick overview of where we are because we're going to leave this in just a couple of weeks. Um, remember that we began with we began by saying that there's a prophetic element to poetry. That the really great poets um, help us to see things that we don't see very well. They help us to feel things that we, we don't feel so often the right way. Our loves are disordered. We have to learn to order them. That's the great challenge we face. And to do that means bringing law and love together. That's our great challenge. It's easier to do one or the other. And then we get into trouble always, always we're too compassionate at the expense of law, we're enabling. If we use law without love, we become cruel. So the great struggle of our lives is to bring those two things together. We started the ancient epics to show that the ancient poets seemed to have this prophetic intuition, foresight about Christ, because every one of the ancient epics ends with that parousia action, the, the return of the king. And then we got to Dante and then to Shakespeare, and I want to pick up with Dante and Shakespeare just briefly. Remember, Dante is the first poet to speak to the Commercial Republic in its beginnings. (coughs) So the regime that we live in, the regime that has had such an influence in forming us, came into existence with him. Remember, the Commercial Republic was founded on the day Dante, I think it was on the day Dante was born. So what he gives us in the Divine Comedy is his treatment of the commercial regime in all of its (coughs) ugliness and and its potential beauty. Um, You remember that almost all the people that we meet in the the Commedia um, have their lives defined by some commercial interest or some conflict involving the tensions between church and state, the claims that both made. One of the reasons Dante loved the commercial regime is because it it was a regime that stood independently of both church and state. So it wasn't, it could not become a theocracy and it couldn't, it couldn't, be, it couldn't, create, it couldn't create the conditions of the modern liberal state that wants to have a state completely removed from God. So the commercial regime was amazing because of its independence from both the church and the state. And we, you know that we've inherited those problems today. So Dante explored, um, the, revealed it, really, in all of its aspects. So, In some ways he's, he saw, back then in the 14th century, what's become a commonplace in our lives. He saw it all, it's there. We read Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, Othello, Hamlet and uh, Wintersdale. God, you guys have read a lot. I'm amazed. I just am amazed. Just truly amazed, truly amazed. Bless your souls. Um, Merchant of Venice and Othello were set in the commercial regime in Venice. Shakespeare thought enough, Shakespeare saw the importance of that regime because it represented a radical break from the feudal world that was being left behind as the modern world came into existence. He knew that he just, these men are extraordinarily brilliant. He understood the nature of that, remember in Othello, Iago has control over people greater than any king we see in any of the plays in monarchies. Shakespeare's showing us that there's something sinister, that he's got, um, he's got Rodrigo's purse strings um, and what we see is his capacity to manipulate people to get what he wants. And, and you know the outcome. I mean, practically everybody died. and it strikes God. It strikes at the heart of marriage. There it is. God bless, it just undoes me. I didn't quite put it together, but in this context you can't. It strikes at the heart of marriage. yeah? He, he, he manipulates Othello, into thinking his wife has been adulterous and Othello kills Desdemona. And if, if those of you who are here did the play, you know, I mean, th- those lines break my heart. I will deny thee nothing. Um, the joy of my heart. When, I mean, I, I quoted those lines. They're, after they're separated in the sea voice, she looks at her and... S- nobody in all of Shakespeare speaks lines expressing a love the way Othello does. Not Anthony and Cleopatra, not Romeo Romeo and Juliet, or kids. Um, It's painful to watch. And then over the bed, it is the cause, it is the cause. If I put you out, he he looks at the candlesticks and said, if I put you out, this light I can relume. But if I put you out, what Promethean heat can bring you back? Once he kills her, I mean, he's weeping. Then he says, let me kiss her once, and I'll kiss her again. I mean, he's weeping, going into this act. He doesn't want to kill her, and he's going to... So we see that there's something in the commercial regime inimical to love. It strikes against it. I've suggested that in a commercial regime, the very nature of the modern commercial regime is um, consumerist. It it excites desires in an effort to sell things, to succeed, in order to satisfy them. So we arbitrarily create desires to get them to satisfy and then create more, new things. The commercial regime has put us on a treadmill. It's not a regime given to love, it's a regime given to artificially encouraging desires in order to satisfy them so that a market can exist. I know that's a pretty brutal way of looking at it, but it seems to me it's there. It's inimical to love. It encourages (coughs) desires without answering them. For that you need to turn to God and uh, uh, hopefully to each other in God. That's our belief. In Merchant of Venice, you remember that um, Antonio borrows money from Shylock to help Bassanio. His ships fail and and Shylock calls his bond in. When he does, the problem we're facing is close to what's going on in the town. Um, If Shylock succeeds in getting his bond Um, fulfilled, Antonio dies. If the Christians succeed and persuade the judge to let the bond go, the contract fails. Who's going to, who's going to enter into a contract when the law can't uphold it? So the town, there's this division, this horrible division. Um, Hold the bond, he's dead, let go the bond, the commercial regime fails because who's going to enter into a contract? It won't happen. Portia comes in, I mean one of the ways of looking at the town is there's no Portia. Portia comes in and answers it. And, but remember what happens afterwards. Weren't you the one who said no Mm Portia? What happens afterwards? After she succeeds in in resolving this problem they all go back to Belmont. Because the commercial regime is, particularly with Shylock's words, remember he says "What's what's the worth of a pound of flesh? It's not as good as beet, guffin, muffin, or goats. That is because you can't get money for it, human flesh is worthless. That's the principle of the commercial regime. It is always seeing things in terms of money and so devaluing the human person abortion. So after the court, see what do they do? Let's go back to that So in both Dante and Shakespeare, <laughs> We see that this commercial regime is is in so many ways a really good regime, but at its heart there are these dark things going on. Um, We saw that with Melville, the whole enterprise, the the New England northern world is in collapse. I mean, it's a failed Christianity and we've been seeing it in Faulkner. And we saw it particularly in, in the town, because in the town, Everybody's complicit in that wrong, nobody will do anything, and the cost of it is Linda's suicide. Yule, she has Yule's. to take, or sorry, Eula's Yule, yeah, suicide. So we've been, no, I mean it's really interesting, if you look, if you look at the um, founding documents, I mean I take them pretty, every 4th of July we read documents at our house. There's A 4th of July is not going to pass without reading. We read from the declaration, the second inaugural, I mean, from the Federalist Papers. I don't want our kids to forget what's going on here. That's how much I value them. If you look at the Federalist Papers, we've got an extraordinary regime. If you read the poets, (laughs) you have to say, what's going on here? What did did the politicians miss? Um, Anyway, that's where we are. And then it led me to these questions, and I I just want to take a minute with them now, because I really want to get on to... um,
3: We did did those
0: questions. I know, but I want to take a minute with them here. Um, I, I think Fred had something, and somebody else. This is where we left off last time. Um, we and it's a touchy subject because it gets us to di- the, having to confront difficult problems involving friends or even family. So it's a anyway. I want to take a minute now for anybody who wants to. Could anybody have done anything differently? in Jefferson and of a Catholic community take a look by the way before we start Fred I want to open, I want to give you because I know you had but take a look at this sheet a real I don't want to read this now but what I did on this sheet was put together the things that I went over and if you I, I would ask all of you to read these because they I think they put together the problem I don't want to do it now but remember, one of the difficulties with Jefferson is that it makes respectability the goal, the end of their lives. Religion gets buried. It's like a buried theocracy. They don't. They. They don't live for holiness or sanctity. They live for civic dignity. the The reason they don't. The reason Ratliff and Gavin are uh, reluctant to to make a thing out of Grover's fault. i quoted the passage here. Is because. Montgomery's the one who sees it well. As he said, "Because the, these Christian-fearing people are, are not going to want to admit that this is what their policeman does on the side, because they will all be implicated." So what it does is deepen the problem. The more you excuse these things, the more impl- implicated, you become in a wrong." Chick keeps saying, "It's our fault. it's we. we're implicated. It's ours." So one of the beauties of this is that we see a whole town implicated in a sin. <coughs> But because of that, nobody's willing to step forward. On the other hand, I I suggested if you look at the graph, the Catholic Church has an order higher than the secular. This goes back to Dante and our earlier works. Um, Christ gave Peter the keys to the kingdom, and, and the reason he did that was to give Peter an authority great enough to deal with sin, because nobody knew as well as Christ how grave sin is. If we were left to ourselves, sin would destroy us. And he gave the disciples power to heal, to cast out demons and... But the the Catholic Church with Christ is supposed to enter the secular world, the polity, the social world, but it represents a higher authority. Its ultimate end is the salvation of souls, not the well-being of given to Caesar, given to God what's God. Christ made that distinction. So, um, we're supposed to enter the world, but the call for, a, certainly a Catholic, but a Christian, certain Catholic, is sanctity. And one of the reasons for the sacraments is that it, it actually makes Christ present in a miraculous way, and in a way the civic world cannot do. The sacraments have their origins in another order. They're from, they're from God. So that... Um, Something more should be going on. And, I'm, and I say that knowing that very often it doesn't. And we've got bad priests. All of us fail as parishioners. We fail our faith all the time. But um, I wanted to set those next to each other. And I put Poor Sons of Bitches on that page if you see it. Because when you get to Memphis with uh, Montgomery and he talks to Reba, you remember that when he asks that favor of her and, and he tells her why, she says, We're all sons of bitches, poor sons of bitches. And I think. I'll come to that in a minute, but it's, it's, it's one of the defining things of this core house and lots more. So, Anyway, that's where we were. Any, any, anybody want to... I want to just do this briefly. I don't want to take too much time, but I'm glad to open it up again if you have any observations or comments or questions. or Fred, did you have something?
2: Well, you, you covered it here. Uh, it was just the, the thought that if there was a Catholic church there that really if you look at the marriage between you and live the a, a specific marriage certainly not a marriage in the sense of the, a sacrament within the Catholic Church so had there been a Catholic Church and, and a good priest uh, that marriage probably meets all the requirements for an annulment so I think there would have probably been an argument that maybe that's in fact what should have happened God was never present in that marriage so it wasn't really a marriage in the sense of a sacrament and with support from other Catholics, you know, maybe she could, you know, found what she was missing in that exercise. But you you it all. Yeah,
0: that, so. and I, and I would hope a a I would hope a spirit of forgiveness. I read that line. Wait just one second. I read that line last week where. Um, Sue pointed it out, and it was on my notes. But I for- remember where um, I think it's Chick talking about the division between the town: half of them wanted to expose, half of them wanted to stay buried. And and he describes the town as finally forgiving, being able to forgive itself. Um, and and that couple, for the abomination that they were, it's it's hard to read that line, certainly for me anyway, and hear a spirit of forgiveness. That the town is far more ready to be legalistic to condemn. <coughs> Let me try to see if I. I think they're far more ready to condemn than they are to break it open because if they do condemn it, they're condemning themselves. So one of the ways they have of dealing with it is to keep it closed so that it's easier for them to point a finger, to say how wrong that is. There's just a real failure to bring love and want together. There's not a spirit of forgiveness here. Remember the, the, the man who says, or the, um, the man that Carraway, that, that Gavin talks with um, who puts his money back in the bank, even after that he says, I want them out of town. I want him out of town. That the answer to this is to get rid of them because that's the only way they can cl- cleanse themselves. If this community sees itself as being saved, because that, that is the defining quality, the, their belief in Christ saves them, That's the, I'm saved, I'm, I'm, I'm the elect, then to open that sin seems to question whether or not they are. I mean, there are lots of implications to this beyond the surface. Um, it's a it's a it's a difficult difficult situation. And one last, one. I, I agree with you, and I, I know you said the same thing last time, Jane. But I I think it's important too, to wonder whether anybody would listen to because there's that line of a that line of thought would be so foreign to and to Spain. I mean, you could say, you know, go marry. Um, I'm not sure that either one of them could hear it, because they come from such a different world, you know. To, and by the here, this is. And I wanted to read this in light of that. In, in light, if you do go to somebody like the Comsons or Yulen to Spain, if if you feel it, you you've got to take the risk and go as a friend, wanting to try to help with the problem. This is Faulkner. I found that the greatest help in meeting any problem with decency and self-respect and whatever courage is demanded is to know where you yourself stand. That is to have in words what you believe and are acting from. How many of us can go to another person in need of help and, and make clear in words our our belief and why it would make a difference? Could we defend our faith in a, in a spirit of wanting to help do we have enough of a grasp, enough of a love of it to be able to take it to another inwards? is to know where you sh- yourself stand, that is to have in words what you believe and are acting from. That's quite apart from this, it's just a quote of Don, did you, did you have something? Yeah, I think what you're saying is very good intellectual theory but in practicality and reality uh, there's not much difference between Catholics and Protestants when it comes to living in a secular society. When you take the a lot of issues, there's not a whole lot of difference. Yeah, I don't happen to agree with that, but. Puse yeah. research studies that yeah. basically, when it comes down to uh, uh, abortion, contraception, marriage, there's practically no difference. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all, but. And I wouldn't be here if I did. I mean, if I didn't, um, there's a whole sacramental. There's a whole mystical sacramental element that we have that's embodied in the sacraments, and a priestly order, a sacramental order that the larger part of the Protestant world doesn't have. Well,
3: I agree, but uh, in practicality, in reality, uh, most Catholics are just like Protestants.
0: No, well, I, I, I don't agree, but... I mean, I, wait, let me try to... It's, I would agree this far, and, and I don't want to... because right now we're in an abstract world, and I, I do not want to get caught in an abstract world with you. Um, if you... If you I, there's not a question in my mind... I've said it, you know, going back to Dante, all the people in Dante's hell are Catholic, the greater majority. That the large part of all of us fail in our faith in some way, all of us, myself, Suzanne, you guys, I'm assuming, I, I don't want to point back, I just think, we carry our failures with, her, with us, we're, we're asked to carry our failures with us and put them away as we go along, that's our call. So in a large, a large way, in a large sense, a, 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 a great part of the Protestant world and the Catholic world overlap in that sense that all of us are trying to get rid of our sins, so had a, no disagreement there, but those are generalizations. But I would say once you get past that into the margins where our faith do do make a difference, then you're an into another world, and you can't you can't hide behind abstractions. When you start looking at concrete examples, the examples are real. The saints, the the uh, martyrdoms, um, the kinds of activities that go on. The, the, and finally the way in which a sacramental world will produce a holiness in a person that will separate that that person from the secular world in a radical way, whatever that person does. It, it can be a woman founding a school system or a hospital. It can be Joan of Arc fighting a, in a battle with a sword, you know, but the life of the saints is real. They go beyond what most of us do. So, anyway, anybody else
1: how many are in the town
0: of Jefferson? How many what?
1: People. What's the population?
0: I don't know, Linda. I don't know. It's am
1: very big because all the guys fit on one porch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's Frenchman's bed. That's Frenchman's but still. No, that's Frenchman's bed. We're in city limits here. <laughs> <laughs> You're too good a reader to say that. <laughs> hard for me to separate like a little town
1: which is much bigger now but when we moved to Grapevine, something like Jefferson. So, you yeah. know, if my neighbors are living in sin or they're a couple not married and have nice out, blah blah blah. I mean I'm not gonna do it it's none of my business. There's mm-hmm. privacy, confidentiality. I don't put my nose in their business and I'm a good Catholic. Yeah. I
3: don't
1: care what they are, but I mean I'll I i do not get the, the whole town making you or their business and pushing them out of town unless it's a town town of 200 or 100 and everybody is in no. everybody's business or something Ew, it's just uncomfortable <laughs>
3: <laughs> but there I mean there are so many instances where they it said that you know you can't do anything without the whole town knowing it
0: Everybody, uh, everybody knows, knows everything, yeah. Yeah. so it
1: can't be very large.
2: <laughs>
0: right, right. You know. 14,
2: Somebody watched the...
1: 291. <laughs> 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 what is it now? $14,291, or was that back
2: day? in the... 1930. 1930. Oh, trust the scientists. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Linda, let me just offer this thought, and then I, I want to turn to the... Um, everybody knows what's going on. It's not hidden. The, 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 there's so much of what Christ does that it, one of the characteristics of the modern world is is that we tend to make privacy greater than anything else. Everything that Christ has taught us, at least in my reading, you correct me here if you can think of something else, doesn't allow that doesn't allow that for us. There's a big difference between sticking our noses in somebody's affair. I mean, just that phrase says, that's not the way to go into this. I mean, if anybody goes into it that way, it's wrong. But um, sin is our business. We're not supposed to meddle. We're not supposed to pry. We're not supposed to self-righteously, you know, stand above people. But everything that Christ did made it clear that he asks us to take him to the world, whatever the circumstances, and risk it. There's a way that we can do this, which is ugly and awful, and we shouldn't do it. But um, nobody can. Hi- we can't let. I mean, we're not supposed to go into people's bedrooms and examine their sexual. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. What what, what we're talking about here is sin, and it's interesting that we've actually got an a, a episode in the Bible in which Christ confronts it because he's got the, <clears throat> the men who are going to throw the stones, and so what he's telling them, if you if you let the one who's not sin throw the fruit, but he says to the woman he doesn't ignore her and says you're none of my business, he says go off and don't do it anymore there's nothing going on in Christ's life I think that allows us to, to stay out of, and keep walls there and I'm not I hope nobody's hearing me suggesting we go break them down, I'm not I'm just saying we, we have to take seriously doing that and it presents us with problems all the time how to do it, what to do it, whether we're doing it in love or mercy. Um, Even whether we, you know, I mean, my assumption, I mean, personally, I'd go to Eula and, I mean, to say what you did, and I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't hear me, but I would still want to go. I would not want to leave that woman in her situation. I'd want to go as a friend and talk as a friend to her with as much heart as I could offer her. Anyway, let's leave it there, because everybody's going to face these things already. I'm sure all of us do in some way. My prayer for all of us, it was certainly there in the beginning, is to f- find the courage to risk, not be afraid, and to take care. That, that When we're going in with Christ, we can't take the self-righteousness that we take, so often with ourselves. We have to go in in a better way, and we have to risk it trusting. If we don't, we very often leave loved ones or friends in a condition we're not supposed to leave them in. It doesn't mean bang them over the head or because they may not hear. But a seed may have been planted. Who knows, I don't know. This is all theoretical. I mean, this is so abstract. And I don't want to, don't want to leave it in a world of abstraction. But. <coughs> doesn't
3: Gavin try to help Eula when she comes to his office that one night? One of the first
1: encounters when he turns her away.
0: Okay, let's take that up because that's concrete and it's in the book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that what he's doing? You're talking about when she offers her body? When, when he, when he, he wait, wait, when he, when he confronts Despain at the ball and then he brings that lawsuit against him. So Eula has some sense of a man doing what he's doing. Let me. But the question you're asking is, or the question I'm asking is, does he really help her? Does he really offer to help her?
3: that she's better than
0: that. What seed did he plant?
3: No. uh, He said, don't
0: touch me. He almost got close to calling her a whore. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Did Manfred send you? Did He sees nothing but bad. Okay. Maybe
3: I was trying to romanticize Gavin's intentions, yeah,
1: that...
0: say but I, okay, okay. I, I myself love Gavin and I identify with part of him that frightens me to death <laughs> he's very idealistic he, he has this romantic notion of sh- chivalric love but we've seen the downside of it and part of it is because he so idealizes things, remember he, he's forever committed to um, protecting the chastity of a woman even if it doesn't exist that's a very chivalric, noble... But the dark side of it is when, when she does what she does, he completely misunderstands that. He assumes Mansford sent her or that he's so squeamish of sexually what's going on that he wants her to get out. Here's, I mean, in, in the context of what we're talking about, my question is if he, if he could have shaken himself of that ideal, could he have gone to her and said... Um, you're married to Phlegm. Um, I understand your relationship with um, <coughs> to Spain. I and you, I can't do anything but honor it. I mean, he makes it clear with Caraway when he says, "18 years of fidelity, you know, devotion." I can't do anything but honor it. I I, I don't know how you could do otherwise. Um, but I have some things to offer you that I'd um, really like you to think about. And I want you to know that when I you know. We can talk about this, and if if you ever decide that you want to go, I will be glad to be there with you. That's a very different thing from what Gavin though, because Gavin is, he, he's a he's a product of that town. Mm-hmm. Um, the chivalric ideal that's southern, you know, ha- has got something self-serving in it. That's not what he brings, so it's not as if he tries to help her, and it's hard for me to see him doing anything in. In the, along the lines of what we're talking about, because one of the contentions that I had when Suzanne and I were, were talking about this at the table one day and we were getting to Eula's suicide, and I just thought, Faulkner has so exposed the problem here, there's no way out. There is none. Whatever option she takes, she's lost and so is Linda. Her answer is to try to get her out of it, to, I think in an effort to spare Linda. That suicide is an indictment. There's nothing else to do. They're lost. And my comment when we were talking about it is, um, it drops off exactly where the Catholic Church should pick it up. And there's nobody there. Mercy, an, an annulment, or a different way of looking. Who's there to talk about those things in the terms in which I'm talking about them? Faulkner's word. To know where yourself stand—that is to have in words what you believe you're acting from. How many of us can give an account of our faith when it's needed? Anyway, I don't see Gavin. When, I mean to take—he's he, a—he's a chivalric knight. When he grabs to Spain, he knows it's going to lead to a fight, and he also knows he's going to lose. It's a—it's a complicated, tough situation. To me, it just reminds me of our own lives in so many ways, the complications that so many of us face with friends or family or selves. <sighs> Quick. Um, I want to just. The mansion is the ideal towards which Flem has been moving, it is the, it is the fulfillment, the fruit of the respectable ideal. Everything about respectable, respectability is embodied in that mansion. And it seems to me comically, if you've been reading closely, you'll see it. You know that one of the images that Faulkner used to describe Flem's house is that mantelpiece that he can put his feet upon. Is there any clear image of self-sufficiency being godlike? You no longer have to do anything. You're self-sufficient. You're you're complete in yourself. You had made it. Is there any more telling image than that mantelpiece because he can put his feet up and not be concerned about anything. So in an interesting way that Faulkner talks about it as a shrine or you know this place where to me it's a fitting image of the of the way in which (coughs) sadly I think too many of us strive to get ahead and reach that situation, that condition of worrylessness, self-sufficiency that we no longer have to worry about things. It's the antithesis to everything Eliot's describing in Dry Salvation, this endless wailing, to get free of it. It's almost like to become a god. The providence, the whole issue of providence, when the, when the book opens, you know that uh, Mink is, um, is looking for Flem and he can't find him, and finally, and he's, he's talking about, so often he talks about this they or them, Moser." that is his image of a God, and in his mind that image is Old Testament, it's legalistic, it's harsh, it will ask things of him and expect him to be a man in the way that he, you know, very rigid. Is there a providence? Because we see at the end of that section that he begins to look at that figure differently. Um, and then I'm going to come to this next week when we look at Linda, but I would like you to just think of two things, because to me it's amazing. In the mansion, even though it's called the mansion, and the mansion is the, center, the centerpiece, the image of the ultimate realization of the respectable ideal, in the mansion he set off against this world of respectability, the world of the displaced person. In the mansion we spend our time in a prison, in a whorehouse, in Goody Hayes, boot camp community, they're all displaced persons. And remember what we did in the town after Benji and Quint and uh, Jason, we had the Dilsey episode and one of the questions that I asked was, and remember that's in third person, we're not in a character's mind, we're outside (coughs) having the Dilsey episode presented. Whether that fourth section wasn't a judgment on the others the Jill Dizzy's the only one and she talks about those who are not going to go to heaven remember the, the the tears and the flood and um, I should have brought the town got it you remember the section I'm talking about with the preacher and all of them crying they're talking about the rich man who won't make it and you can't read those sections without hearing the Compsons, the disintegration of the wealth of that plantation family. So one of the questions it seems to me that we're being asked to ask, we're being asked to answer here is, why does Faulkner present us with this world of um, the displaced people, the marginalized, the whores, the misfits, the prisoners? When you set that against the world of the respectable people, what do we see? Just, I'm going to read some passages, but hold on to that because once again, it's a, way of, it's a way of revealing some qualities about that respectable world that we don't see when we're stuck in it. Um, and Linda. And next time we're going to start the Linda episode. So, but just to look ahead. to, to uh, Why is Linda so important? You can't read any one of those chapters in the Linda section without something being made of her. And always indirectly. It's like she's not there. Chick will say, why did she come back? There'll be this episode when, at Christmas, when she's, she and Flem have been invited and they, and they, I think it's Chick, pictures her and Fleming at, at a dinner with this long table with Linda at one end and Flem at the other, and he'll ask, why is she there? She, she, she is a new woman. She couldn't be more unlike her mother. Her mother was a product of that South. <coughs> Linda is hardworking she gets involved in school, she takes on the Negro cause, she fights against the Jewish prejudices. She's making a nuisance of herself, the police are investigating the FBI are investigating her. She's an image of a new woman entering the world, and she's Eula's daughter. <coughs> Why is so much being made of her? Just keep that question on your mind when you read the Linda section, because it's, it's impossible for me to read it without feeling that I'm in a detective story, that the detective story writer keeps hiding things, Treat, putting things indirectly, but behind them all is this question, why is she here? What's she doing? And all the answers are she's involved with the Negro cause, she's involved, you know, she's a communist, she's... and the question is, are, are those the real reasons or are they deflections? Is, is, is Faulkner trying to keep us from seeing something that we need to see? Are, are, we, are we learning to see what's really there? Or are we being misled by? So when you read the Linda section, keep that keep that in mind. And I just want to look quickly at two two scenes, and then we'll stop. Sorry. In chapter two. Mink realizes that Phlegm's um, <clears throat> not coming. Um, in Chapter 3, Ratliff recounts the, the Montgomery Ward story when he was caught, but it's an interesting story because we realize from Ratliff's account that Phlegm had to go through much, much more than we would have realized from the town in the town when we got the Montgomery Ward episode, the whiskey turns up and that's all we know. Here we learned that Phlegm had to go out to this bootlegger, he had to travel all night, he was up all night, he had to come back, he had to, um, he had to do all he could to get his cousin in the legislature. Um, so we, we had this image of Phlegm as being unable to rest, but he has to keep doing everything because he has to control everything and he can't get Montgomery set off to the prison he wants to without the help in the legislators some changes. So we see the Snopes principle, the Snopes spirit spreading and Flynn's influence um, expanding. It's, it's covering a wider area. But here in, in Chapter 4, I, I want to look at a couple of the things. Chapter 4 is special to me because it's the first time we get now, remember, we're in this world of displaced people. This is pretty amazing. In the, in, in the town, we're always surrounded by respectable people. In the mansion, we're surrounded by these no-accounts. Criminals and you know, the lowly of the lowly, the poor sons of bitches. Um, this is the first time, and I want to come to a question after I go through it, this is the first time we've had a chapter from the point of view of a Snopes. The whole chapter is from Montgomery's point of view. It's odd because the impression that I think most of us come away from the novel with is the, the, the Snopes have no interior. There's nothing to hear in there. Flems is, is empty, I hope everybody sees that. He is almost a beingless creature. Eck is different because, as Snopes all admit, he doesn't belong to the family, he's a, he's a scandal to them. The Snopes don't, they don't, we never have a sense that they have an interior. And yet this whole chapter is, is given to us from the point of view of Montgomery Snopes. It opens with Montgomery and Flem negotiating. Um, um, Flem is blackmailing him to go to the prison to set up uh, Mink. He wants to try to get him involved in an escape so another 20 years can be added to his his time because he knows in five years Mink is going to be out. So fifteen of the twenty years has passed, Mink's got five years left, Flem's now fearing for his life. So all of this apparently was trumped up to get Montgomery there. And all the things that he had to do, I mean it's sort of, you. if you ever get a picture of, of the evil man putting his feet on the mantelpiece, <laughs> I can't see Flem. Well, it's either he's doing that or he's insanely busy, but so he, um, he blackmailed him because he's got an envelope with a stamped that's stamped that he can use to get Montgomery Snubs to a federal prison for much longer. So they agree to, to do this and Mink sets off, he's given a furlough for a few days, he sets off for Memphis to ask Ariba, who's the madam of the whorehouse, to send this money to Mink and Jim. Okay. So I wanna just go to that. When he comes, when he comes to Reba's, it's a touching scene. Reba's trying to be personable with this guy who's pretending to be a soldier when he's not. Apparently he doesn't have the money. They've got a new woman, Thelma. Minnie is, I think, one of the servants of the house. And on page 87, Um, Reba recalls her experience with Binford who was the head, the master of the house, the pimp, whatever you would call him. Um, And he's died and she describes their relationship as being like two doves that they got along so well, but he's dead and now she's doing it on her own, she's alone. So immediately, we come into a whorehouse and the woman is having to bear this by herself. She doesn't have the help of the man, he's gone. So we have an image of a a woman Um, carrying these heavy burdens. Middle of 187, um, she was looking at me, sell it out and come on up here. Is this a proposition? I said, All right, come up here and be the landlord. The beer and drinks is already on the house and you wouldn't need much. She knows that he doesn't go into sex, but this is on page 87 in the middle of the page. Um, She offers him the job. Um, She knows he doesn't care much for sex, so that's not going to be an issue. And then she says, And I can afford that, and I wouldn't have to be always watching you about the girls, just like Mr. Binford, because I could always trust him too, always. She was looking at me, there was something in her eyes, or somewhere, I never had seen before, or expected either, for that matter. How typical of a Snopes is that? Yeah, is everybody following? Um, There was something in her, a man can do what a woman can't, she says, you know, paying off protection, Handling drinks, all of that. She, middle of one or eighty-eight. She looked at me, yes, not even like a not even to a dog. Like two doves, she roared and lifted the glass of beer, then banged it down and shouted to the door, Minnie, Minnie came into the door, bring the gin, Reba said. Now, Miss Reba, you don't want to start that. So clearly she's got drinking issues. I mean, Minnie knows that. So we're in a community in which the servant helps the mistress and Montgomery is seeing something in her eyes that he'd not seen before. Now Snopes are not usually that observant for Snopes to say that. You know that the guy gets chased out and then uh, and then there's this exchange on ninety-one between Montgomery and Reba. He pulls out fifty dollars and he gives her ten towards the top of ninety-one. This is for you and Minnie to remember me until I come back in two years. I want you to send the other to my great-uncle in the Mississippi Penitentiary at Parchman. You come back in two years? Yes, I said, you can look for me, two years. The man I'm going to be work for says I'll be back in one, but I don't believe him. All right, now what do you want me to do with the 40? Send it to my great-uncle, Mink Snopes, Parchman. What's he in for? He killed a man named Zach Houston back in 1908. In Houston, I love this line. Most people get, oh poor thing. She goes, did he deserve it? And she's, she's ready to take a gun. I mean, I love this. People pardon me. I'm glad to see people do that. Did he deserve it? Um, did he deserve killing? I don't know. But from what I hear, he sure worked to earn it.
3: <laughs> the poor
0: son of a bitch. How long is your uncle in for life? I said. All right, she said. I know about that, too. She's got this worldly wisdom. Put her in Jefferson. Would she have, qu- I mean, is there any, any, har- any ugliness she has not faced in the world, in a bruntle. Um. All right, she said, I know about that, too. When will he get out? About 1948, if he lives, and nothing else happens to him. All right, how do I do it? I told her, the address and all. You could send it from another prisoner. I doubt it, she said. I've never been in jail. I don't aim to be. That to me is a really funny line because she's taking it literally, and we know that being a prisoner doesn't just mean... is okay. a prisoner. I hope everybody sees that. With the, when Christ talks about, I really believe this, when Christ talks about letting the prisoners out, he's just not talking about jail, even though I be- he is. There's some way in which all of us are prisoners. Do we unlock the doors for each other to help us get out? in our marriages, in our families, with friends. Send it from a friend then. All right, she said. She took the money and folded it. The poor son of a bitch, she said. Which one are you talking about now? Both of them, she said. All of us, every one of us, the poor sons of bitches. (laughs) I love that line. That's why I put it over the circle on the one side. What's the difference between Reba and the way she looks at the community and the way that anybody else in Jefferson looks at themselves? Don't most of the people in Jefferson see themselves as being saved?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Here, there's no question. They are among the dregs. We are poor sons of the bitches. We are... These are the outcasts, the displaced. They have no place in that respectable world. I hope everybody's getting a clear picture here. Faulkner's putting two worlds against each other. And they really are illuminating each other. Okay? So, he, um, he goes back and meets with Phlegm, and then he's taken off to... Um, to jail it's chapter 5 this ends the mink section I just want to go through a couple of things here um, now you know that he went there with one purpose in mind to set up mink to escape so that mink would have another 20 years added to his life Something happens early on on page 101, 100. Remember in the town, three-quarters of the way through, we had that brief section that I described as um, elegiac, that the kids are released from school and there's this um, sense that something is about to happen. The kids are out. Faulkner is its just amazing. He prepares prepares us. If we're reading well we know something's the chick even says it's like something was going to happen and then there's that long melancholy meditation of Gavin's looking at Jefferson and uh, it, reminds, it reminds me a little bit of Christ when he looked down on uh, uh, Jerusalem and wept and he looked down at the town with this, Christ was there looking down on the town before it was going to be destroyed and he cried Gavin looks at this town in a melancholy spirit. He has no idea what's coming. This is Faulkner just preparing us that there's somehow this responsiveness between nature and what happens in the human realm. We get something of that here. Um, Mink has been wearing himself down picking cotton all of his life and showing nothing to gain from it. 100. They were picking the cotton now. Already every cotton country in Mississippi would be grooming their best, fastest champions to pick against the best of Arkansas and Missouri. Go down. No champion in anything would ever be here because only failures wound up here. The failures <coughs> of killing and stealing and lying. So it, this turns out to be a good crop year. Something's going on. The, the cotton is fruitful. He carries within himself a sense of his life's failures. Go down. <coughs> He wouldn't have dared misuse him about that count to where he'd to kill him, but some folks were born to be failures and get caught always. Some folks were born to be lied to and believe it, and he was one of them. Not a good sense of himself. He was a fine crop, one of the best he remembers, <coughs> as though everything had been exactly right, season, wind, and sun and rain to sprout it, the fierce long heat of summer to grow and ripen it as though back there in the spring the ground itself had said all right for once let's confederate instead of fighting so the earth somehow offers itself here this implacable earth that has taken the lives away of sharecroppers it's almost like it's sympathetic so here's nature a little bit offering itself um and, and he talks about the way in which all these contingencies that usually take away from people are overcome In the middle of 101. And not just me, but all my tenant and cropper kind that have immolated youth and hope on 30 or 40 or 50 acres of dirt that wouldn't nobody but our kind work. This is about the lowly who'd spend their lives brutally being beaten up by work. Um, That wouldn't nobody but our kind work because you're all our kind have. But we can burn you. Every late February or March we can set fire to the surface of you until all of you in sight is scorched and black and there ain't one goddamn thing you can do about it. You can wear out our bodies and dull our dreams and wreck our stomachs with the sow belly and, and cornmeal and molasses, which is all you afford us to eat, but <coughs> every spring we can set fire again, and you know that too. It's like there's some justice in the world, even if it's this heart's justice now you know what happens um, um, page 104 um, Mink is contemplating him and Flem getting old and for a moment it's almost as if he relinquishes or um, gives up his vengeance quest that he sees the two of them getting old and then 105 he says, but I reckon not, he thought, can't neither of us help nothing now, can't neither one of us take nothing back. So again he had only five more years and would be free and this time he had learned the lesson which the fool young lawyer had tried to teach him. There were eleven. He, um, men tried to escape and uh, because he was already as- caught trying to escape when uh, Montgomery set him up, and he's got 20 more years now, when these 11 men plan to escape he does everything he can to avoid it. And as a matter of fact what he does will lead to their arrest. Um, and what happens now changes what he does. Um, he tells himself to wait and after the aborted escape, one of the men, Stillwell, manages to escape and after he escapes, he keeps sending postcards back, war- counting the years off, letting Mink know that as soon as he gets free, Still is gonna kill him. The warden feels sorry for Mink enough to say that when he avoided the escape, it actually helped lead to the capture of the men. He, he qualified to be released but he didn't want to release him for his own good. And Mink has that response that he always has, well, I might start, I mean, it was, he, he stopped objecting to things. He's no longer objecting or complaining. He says, I'll just go back to waiting. He doesn't get angry. What he, what he says comically when um, he said at the bottom of 108 that Captain Jobo killed one of the men, you know, almost killed Stillwell. And Mink has this response. If Captain Jobo, the guard who shot, had just killed Stillwell too, I could go home tomorrow, he said. Couldn't you trace out where he is at the letter and send Captain Joba wherever that is? <laughs> it's got this it's a wonderful sense of justice. If you could have killed him here, why don't you send him out there and kill the guy? Meek wants to get out. But notice that he says all of this with a spirit with of acceptance, that he's prepared to wait. Um, where is that? Sorry, I'm missing. I'm back on 103, is, is where we get the, the stark statement of it. <clears throat> At this point, this is um, earlier, his mode of thinking is if they just let me out for a day, I'll go back and kill him, and I'll come back and serve out my time. He's glad to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, but I stopped thinking that way. In the middle of 103, Wherever he is and give me 10 minutes and I'll come back here and you can go on and hang me if that's what you want to do. Go down. He was still saying the same thing, just let me go long enough to reach Jefferson and have 10 minutes and I will come back myself and you can hang me. He didn't think things like that anymore now because he had learned to wait. So after, the, after he's caught, after Flynn humiliates him, he's caught with a dress and a bonnet and he's genuinely humiliated, something happens to him. Um, because he had learned to wait. And waiting, he found out that he was listening, hearing too, that he was keeping up with what went on by just listening and hearing. (coughs) Um, Now, go on over. Um, On page 110... Mink is counting off the days before he's released, and you know Stillwell's going to um, kill him in 110 in the middle. Um, so there just ain't nothing no human man can do, because if if Stillwell were gone, he'd get he'd be out now, right? But so he's saying there's nothing nobody can do. I'm here, and he's accepting it. Yes, the warden said, give him, give him time, and he will do something else. The police somewhere will catch him for time. He said, suppose a man ain't got time, just to depend on time. Down. Yes, he said, he'll have that much time to work on. Then Christmas again, another card with the Mexican postmark, three years now, not near as far as you think. He stood there, fragile and small and durable, in the barred over walls, his face lowered a little, peaceful. Still Mexico, I noticed, he said, maybe he will kill him there. What? The warden said, what did you say? He didn't answer. He just stood there, peaceful, musing, serene. Then he said, before I had that air-cow trouble with Jack Houston, when I was still a boy, I used to go to church every Sunday and Wednesday, prayer meeting too, with the lady that raised me, until I... Who were they, the word said? You said your mother died. He was a son of a bitch. She wasn't no Kent Tall, she was just his wife. Was his name No. Snopes? Yes, Snopes, until I got big enough to burn out on God, like you do when you think you're already grown up and don't need anything from nobody. Then when you told me how by keeping nine of them ten felons from breaking out, I didn't just add five more years to my time, I fixed it, so you weren't going to let me out, I mean, is there a more supreme injustice than that? He could have been released for his own good ward's holding him back. So he's not serving out his punishment, it's just one more way in which this they seem to be working against him. By all rights he should be out. Then when you told me how by keeping my nine of them ten felons from breaking out, I didn't just add five more years to my time, I fixed it so you weren't going to let me out at all. I've taken it back. Because what's he going to do? He served out his time. The warden's not going to let him out and jeopardize his life. He's absolutely helpless. Even serving a sentence isn't going to free him here. Right? Um, I've taken it all back. Took what back, the warden said? Back from who? I've taken it back from God. You mean you joined the church since that night two years ago? No, you haven't. You've never been inside a chapel since you were back. The warden thinks he's he's joined the the he calls it the small, violent, irreconcilable nonconformist, non everything, and everybody else which existed the regular prison religion. He's describing that the group of inmates who form a body to practice a religion, but there's some violent spirit to it. He's assuming that's what Mick me means, but clearly he, that's not what he means. Go down by the conviction of crimes peculiar to the middle class. This, these are the inmates. To respectability originating in the domestic domesticity or anyway exoriousness, bigamy, rifling the sex but That is, he's saying that all of these men who are hardened criminals have their origins in respectability. That's where they all come from. That world. I didn't need no church, he said. I done it in confidence. In confidence, the warden said. Yes, he said, almost impatiently. You don't need to write God a letter. He has done already, seen inside you long before he would need to, to bother to read. It. Because a man will learn a little sense in time, even outside. But he learned it quick in here, that when a judgment powerful enough to help you will help you, if all you got to do is just take back and accept it, you are a fool not to. So he will take care of steel for you, the warden said. Clearly the is laughing at him right now. Why not? What's <laughs> he got against me? Thou shalt not kill, the warden said. Why did he tell Houston that? I never went all the way to Jefferson to have sleep on a bench. And the deep would just try to buy them shells until Houston made me. Well, I'll be damned. And he says, <laughs> he wants to be careful of the God because he's not what sure will happen to him if Nick's if right. Um, so when it was only October, no holiday, Valentine, or Christmas card month, they knew of. When the warden sent for him, he was not even surprised. The warden sat looking at him for maybe a half a minute with something not just aghast, but almost respectful in the look, then said, I will be damned. It was a telegram this time. It's from the chief of police in San Diego, California. There was a church in the Mexican Quarter. They had stopped using it as a church. had a new one, or something, anyway. It had been consecrated. So what went on inside, since even the police haven't quite caught up with yet? Last week it fell down, they don't know why, it just fell down all of a sudden. They found a man in it, what was left of him. This is what the telegram says, fingerprints, FBI identification, your man, number 08213, Stufford H. Stillwell. The warden folded the telegram back into the envelope and put it back into the drawer. Tell me again about that church you said you used to go to before a Houston major kill him.
3: <laughs>
0: he didn't answer that at all. He just drew a long breath, exhaled, I can go now. I can be free. The, the warden then says, I mean, this is another, here's that they. Yeah. except you know that he's learned to trust that Because he said, you don't have to write God a letter. And it's the first time he says God. He knows what's inside of you before you've even... So think about the shift from Mink at the very beginning when he looked at the they and the them and the oh, moster. Now he's talking about a God who knows the heart. And then he says, I'm free. And then immediately the warrant says, no, you're not, because you can't get out without a petition. And then Mink gives up again because then there's nothing to do. I mean, he just never stops because he doesn't have the, the lawyer. is not around. He has no family. His wife's dead. And then five months later, they receive a letter from... There she is again, I'm telling you, be careful, don't underestimate, do not underestimate the power of women. (laughs) He he knows nothing about her, except what he hears. She knows nothing about him, and yet, she initiates this petition. So, with the petition, Ming's free. And then there's that lovely scene, but I'm going to wait until we meet, when he gets out of jail and he enters into this world that is absolutely... it was dirt when he walked in, it's paved, There are noises and lights and it's the world completely changed. He's 63 years old now. He can't count on his body, he's afraid to ask people because he's never asked people in his life how to do things. He's absolutely a misplaced person. Estranged, marginalized, but he's got a purpose. Um, I want to pick up with that reading here, but, um, but a couple of questions. The next section is called the Linda section. Um, she doesn't know Mink, and she, she got Gavin to send this petition to release him. So what's going on with Linda? That's the first question. And what's going on with Mink? How, how has he changed? Two, two brief questions b- before we leave. What's your response to Montgomery Stokes in that chapter? Any feelings about him? Why did Faulkner put it there? In some sense it seems so strange it almost doesn't belong, but there it is. Why did he put that there? It's just a pawn? It's just a pawn. A pawn? using Huh? He's using You mean phlegm? No,
1: phlegm
0: is using phlegm is using Right, right, right. right. But still, I mean, yes, phlegm is. But we could have known that if Rat- Ratliff could have narrated that section. Easily. Ratliff knows. He could have easily conveyed all of that. But we don't get that. We get that from... Mon- so this is the an up-close personal experience of Montgomery. And by the way, I forgot to read that passage. The, the, the chapter ends with his saying, I want to go to jail because I want to get free. I want to be safe from the Snopes world. And he's looking forward to jail. Um, he'll get out, but... Why that chapter on Montgomery? You know
1: how flam will use even his own family to
0: But we know that from the beginning. He's there's I mean he's been using his family, getting rid of them, using them. This is from Montgomery's point of view. What how do you look at it as a human being? when you think about the way we've been encouraged to see the Snopeses all along. He's a willing particip- participant
1: in the whole thing. I don't know that he's, he's willing because he, he doesn't really have a choice. No. This guy is different. He's not, he's not your average Snopes. I agree. I mean there's more to him. There's depth. I was there's, sympathetic to him. I mean he's going to get bested by Phlegm. He's done bad things. He's not Exonerated, but it was something sort of melancholy. He felt kind of bad that he, was, yes. he did it. So I, he I, I'm bad.
0: sorry because I rushed through. There are two passages that I should. Have, one is when he describes the scene when Mink is caught. He says he looked at him and was embarrassed.
3: Yeah,
0: he's, and he wants to turn away his eyes, genuinely because he's so embarrassed. He's hurt. To, he's hurt to watch it. The only reason he does is, like Phlegm or like Mink. He's bound to that contract that he made with Flem, so he has to watch. So against himself, he's forcing himself to watch something that's humiliating. So he's sympathizing with them. He's and
3: proud.
0: yeah. And later, um, when he's recalling that moment, <coughs> and, the, and the Snopes family, say he was actually proud of him because of the spirit that he showed.
2: Going, going through the government war, you get a sense of the future, feud- that he, he recognizes in trying to defeat Flynn. Because the way he does it, the fact that the, the envelope with the stamp, basically it's, it's the difference between a federal crime yep. or a non-federal crime. Yep. A federal crime then you're going to go to a federal penitentiary, right. and that's not where Mink is. Yeah. But he threatens him with that. And he realizes he has really no choice but to do what, he, what he's been asked to do, whether he wants to do it or not. And so, in, in, in a warped sense, he looks at how Flynn gets things done, and that's where, you know, there's almost a sense of pride in the fact that, you know, he seems to be virtually indefeatable, so you kind of get that sense. <coughs> and I, don't think he's, I don't
1: think he's proud of Flynn. I think he's, I think he's looking at Mink and the fight that Mink had with the guards in this dress and sun bonnet. Um, and he was proud of the spirit of that snow. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was proud. Of there's him. a couple
0: of things here. Wait, just because we got I just saw it with a different. Yeah, you know, but you, you know, it's, a, it's a good point A Couple of things, quick, because um, this is not a small chapter. It's extraordinary if you think about it. I think what, what Faulkner is doing once again, if you put these chapters together, is that he's showing us there's something very, very human in these outcasts. Remember, Montgomery looks at war at um, Reva's eyes and is aware that there's something there, and and we learned that she lost Finford, that she's alone. He's able to feel things and sympathize with people in a way we've not seen with the Snopes. So something's happening to him, and whatever's happening was intensified and taken farther by what he experienced with Mink, because he looks at them sad, saddened and proud. This is not a Snopes, because Snopes himself with phlegm would have felt nothing. So we're seeing a man, and in Reba's world, you know, with the prostitute world, this is a man capable of feeling. He's human. He feels sadness. He takes a pride in the right things. It's like a turn is is occurring in a Snopes. and um, that's part of that world. Um, and and then we're going to go. Well, we go into the whorehouse, and, and then we'll go into Goody Hayes. But so he put a, he Faulkner's made a crack. We enter into this margin the world of this marginalized people to see that there's something very very human them. Um, and we're going to find it again in Goody Hayes. Um, <coughs> remember that lines at the end when he says, I'm glad to go to jail because I'll be s- safe from the Snopes. This is a Snopes who's become more aware of the ugliness of Flem and all the stuff that he does and seems to be changing. Um, when you read the Linda section, Be careful of being tricked. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> Why is she back? I'll leave it there. We do the Linda section, or try to cover most of it next week. You guys have a good week? have a good Lent too. To continue to have a good Lent.